Grab your Bibles and let's go to Psalm 46. Absolutely love the Psalms and uh, a lot of times in my devotional time, I find myself in the book of Psalms. And uh, one, one Psalm that has become really near and dear to my heart is Psalm 46. When I was preparing this sermon, I reflected back to when I was about five or six years old. My parents had us uh, in a program called Bible Memory Association, BMA, and they had us memorizing verses. And one of the, one of the first uh, uh, books that you start with is a little uh, ABC book, and each uh, verse that you memorize begins with a different letter of the alphabet, except for X and Z, I think, were the only two that uh, they didn't have in there. Uh, one of them was Psalm 46.1, and so since the age of five or six, uh, this verse, uh, the, one of the verses in this passage has really stood out to me, and I want to use uh, this verse as a springboard uh, for what we're going to study tonight. As I was uh, thinking through this sermon and and pondering life and my own life uh, more specifically, I was thinking about what we as humans, and more specifically, what we as Christians turn to for a refuge. And so I had to define refuge. I had to look up, what is the definition of refuge? Well, so let me just give you a definition of the word refuge. It is this, a refuge is a shelter or protection from danger, trouble, It means to take refuge from a storm. It is a place of shelter, protection, or safety. It also means anything to which one has recourse for aid, relief, or escape. I want to reread that last one. It has anything to which one has recourse for aid, relief, or escape. I had to stop and think through in my own life, what do I turn to as a refuge or for refuge? What are the things that I personally turn to in my life uh, as a means for relief or escape? And then what are the things that other people turn to? So I began to make some observations and I actually began to ask people, just various friends and associates, what are the things that we as humans turn to for refuge? And so I have a list that I want to just offer you tonight to get you to think about it. And perhaps some of these might apply to you because I believe this is a universal experience. The things that we find refuge in, for, for example, uh, possessions, we, we see them as a way to provide for us some kind of relief or an escape. Another refuge we have uh, is oftentimes just found in people, you know, acceptance and security and honor. Uh, Perhaps we find a refuge in things like entertainment and sports and television. It's kind of our way to get relief or to escape is to sit down and to grab the remote and we can shut out the world. It's a refuge for us. Perhaps some of us have struggled with this, but a refuge of alcohol and drugs. It's a huge problem in our culture. Other people have seen uh, actually getting married as an escape or a refuge and escape from something that they're struggling with. And then other people see a family having kids or grandkids, and more specifically, having well-behaved kids. That's a refuge for them. That's an escape for them. That's a way that they find relief or aid. There are others that I jotted down. I've interacted with some who find relief or their refuge is their job, and they become what we would classically call them a workaholic. 
Some people find a refuge in nature where they just want to escape, and so they get out in nature, and we certainly enjoy nature in our community. Other people look to success or hobbies or food as a way of escape. It's a refuge for them. While others see where they live, what kind of house they live in, maybe a degree from college, other accomplishments. There's all kinds of things that we pursue for a refuge. So I want to talk uh, just about this issue of refuge tonight. The truth is that there is some form of refuge. It's temporary, but there is some form of refuge in everything I just listed. There is some form of refuge in it. Again, it's temporary, but the refuge is there. Life is hard. There are hardships, there are trials, we struggle, there's suffering, there's heartache. And if we are honest, it's in those things where we oftentimes find out what or who our refuge is. It's what we turn to for escape, for relief. Here in Psalm 46, the psalmist talks about the refuge. Go to Psalm 46, verse 1. Psalmist says this God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. That's the verse that I had to memorize as a six year old. God is our refuge and strength. And then the psalmist goes on to talk about two, two things within our world that seem to be a threat to us a threat to our security, a threat to our safety, a threat to our comfort. He goes on to talk about nature and nations. Those are two things that can create and wreak a lot of havoc in our lives. And so the psalmist points the people right to God. He says, God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in time of trouble. He's right here in the moment. He's a present help in time of trouble. So the question, as I read that verse, a couple weeks ago in my uh, devotional time, as I read that verse, I, I started wrestling with the question, why should we, as God's people, why should we really turn to God for a refuge? What is it about God that would draw us or compel us to turn to him as opposed to all of those other things that I listed? Because I find some refuge in some of those things. What is it about God that would draw me to him where I would say, I'm going to rest in him. I'm going to find refuge in him. I'm going to find relief and aid in him. What is it about God? So in studying for this sermon, I thought, you know, what is God's resume that would compel you and I, would compel any of God's people to want to rest and trust in him? And that took me to perhaps my favorite chapter in the Old Testament. So go over to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. In this chapter, we see a presentation of the greatness of God. And so as I'm thinking of, why should I look to God as a refuge? Why? Why should I do that? I start reading these verses and Isaiah paints this unbelievable picture of the greatness of God that should draw me, should draw you to say, I want my refuge to be in that God. Okay? So Isaiah 40. Now, just to give you the context, 
For 39 chapters, Isaiah had written uh, a lot of things about coming judgment, okay? And he talked about not just judgment on the, the Jewish people, but judgment was coming on all the surrounding nations as well. And so if you read the first 39 chapters, there's a lot of stuff that's just kind of hard to read through. There's a lot of phenomenal things in there, but there's some passages that are just hard to read through because it's about judgment, Okay, so you could kind of put yourself in the sandals of the Jewish people when they hear the judgment is coming on not just the other nations, but upon themselves for their disobedience. They might struggle with hope. They might struggle to turn to some other refuge than their God. And in fact, if you look at chapter 39 in the context, right at the end of this whole section of chapters 1 through 39, we have the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, if you know the story of Hezekiah, he was one of the kings of the southern kingdom of, of Israel called Judah, and he was one of the good kings. He actually was a very good king. And towards the end of his life, Isaiah came to him and said, God says that you're going to die. And Hezekiah pleads with God, he prays, and he begs God to let him live. So God extends his life 15 years. And in those 15 years, Hezekiah, something happened in Hezekiah's life. He started to make some decisions that were not good. And one of them is recorded for us in uh, 2 Kings 20, but also right here. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 39, it says there, At that time, Merodach Beladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and, and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with him. And showed him the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house and all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I've not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons uh, who will descend from you whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Stop there, okay? Just for a second. Okay, Hezekiah made a bad choice, made a bad decision, and judgment's going to come on Israel. And he hears this message from Isaiah. Now, at that point, you would think that Hezekiah would say, oh, boy, I need to repent. I need to go back and seek forgiveness from God. I need to turn back to God and be humble before him. Not so. Let's keep reading. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Somewhere he became totally self-centered. He's not even thinking of the next generation and the next generation. He's just thinking of himself. So in that context, their king, the Israelites, the Jewish people, their godly king, he's even got judgment coming down on, on them because of his, his actions. It's a bad situation. It's heartbreaking. There's not a lot of comfort, not a lot of hope. So how do you bring people hope and comfort when all they've heard for 39 chapters is judgment? Isaiah 40, awesome place to go. So let's look at it. In Isaiah 40, there are at least, 
There's probably many more than what I have. I'm just going to give you five what I call resume points for God that would draw any person who knows God to him to find refuge in him. As Isaiah writes here, he uses what is called an anthropomorphic expression. And what that is is he uses human characteristics and applies them to God. We know God doesn't have a hand. We know God doesn't have legs. He's spirit. So Isaiah uses these expressions to help us understand a little bit more about the character and the personhood of God. So we have five characteristics or five resume points. On your notes there, resume point number one. What we see here in Isaiah 40 is that God is infinitely greater than nature. God is infinitely greater than nature. Look at uh, verse 12. Isaiah says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. He weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. He's pointing to God. He's pointing to our refuge. He's pointing to the Israelites' refuge here. And he points to some things in nature. First of all, he says there that this person, God, Yahweh, measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. The hollow of the hand. If you look at your hand, everybody look at your hand. Right here in the palm, okay, that is the hollow of your hand. Here's an experiment. When you get home tonight, go out and get a a spoon and scoop up some water and see how much water you can hold in the hollow of your hand. It's going to be about two teaspoons or tablespoons, okay? Not a whole lot. Isaiah is presenting to us a picture here of an infinite God, our God, our refuge. And guess what? All the oceans, all the seas, all the lakes, all the ponds, all the canals, all the irrigation ditches, all the water aquifers, everything in the palm, in the hollow of his hand. I don't know about you, but I'm drawn to that kind of God for a refuge. Isaiah continues. He says here in verse 12 that he marks off or he measures the heaven with a span. He marks off the, heaven with the heavens with a span. The span, if you look at your hand again, from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your little finger, that is the span, okay? Mine, I got short stubby fingers, probably about six inches, five inches. Some, some pro basketball players probably nine, 10, 11, 12 inches, Okay? Isaiah says here, God marks off the heavens with a span. The universe, it's like this. Heavens, that's our God. I want a refuge, and that is our refuge. That's the God that we're talking about. This is amazing, very vivid picture for us when you consider that the nearest star besides the sun, something like four and a half light years away, God, our God, marks off the heavens with a span. Isaiah continues, he says, calculates the dust of the earth by a measure or enclosed the dust of the earth by a measure or in a measure. One translation says, in a basket. So you think about the dust on the earth and to this infinitely great God, all the dust on the earth is like putting in this little basket. That's how uh, infinite God, that's how great God is. That's our refuge. It's a small measurement. The, the measure... It's just a tiny, tiny tool that they used for measurement in, in uh, ancient Israel, okay? It's to God, to the huge God that we love and know and serve. He measures the dust of the earth in a measure. 
But Isaiah doesn't continue or doesn't stop there. He continues. He says he weighs the mountains in the balance and the hills in a pair of scales. You just think about the, the Andes and the Alps and the Himalayas and the Rocky Mountains and then all the little hills. And to this huge God, to this great God who is our refuge, it's like putting them on a pair of scales. They're insignificant. Weight, size, the mass of them is insignificant to our refuge, to our God. So Isaiah tells us here, God is infinitely greater than nature. But he continues, resume point number two. He tells us that God is infinitely greater in knowledge. Look at verse 13. He asks a couple questions. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is clearly no one. No one. That's, that's the answer to those questions. God is infinitely greater in knowledge. In other words, God doesn't need a counselor. See, the, the, what's interesting about this uh, now, this point here is that if you studied Babylonian history, the Babylons had a god called Marduk. And Marduk was seen by them in their religious system as the creator, but Marduk didn't just go and create whatever he wanted. He had to consult another god in their way of thinking. He had to consult another god. He had to go get counsel from somebody else. Unlike our god who doesn't need a counselor, who doesn't consult with anybody else, Our God does whatever he pleases. A great contrast to the Babylonian gods. See, our God, he doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need a director. He doesn't need a teacher. He doesn't need new understanding. He doesn't need new information from his people. And yet, I'm inclined to think that some of us, perhaps at some point in our life, have thought of ourselves as maybe needing to inform God on some things. I know in my own life, when things have not gone the way that I want them to go, I'm inclined to think, at least in my heart, maybe not say it externally, that that, God, is not the way it's supposed to go. The way it's supposed to go. And right there, I step into the role of informing God or counseling God. Isaiah asks us here, whom did he take counsel and with whom did he, who has instructed him and taught him in the path of justice and who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. No one. God is infinitely greater in knowledge. Now, we're going to add to that point in a few minutes, but let's go to resume point number three. So God is infinitely greater than nature. He's infinitely greater in knowledge. Resume point number three, God is infinitely greater than the nation's. Look at verse uh, 15. Isaiah continues and he says this, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is is not sufficient to burn, nor is beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Isaiah does something unique here, okay? In verse 15, he starts off this verse with the word behold. So it's like, behold. And it's really what it means is stop and think. Stop and ponder. I want your attention. Behold. It's very intense in the original language as I understand it. Behold. 
And then he says this, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. Think about that. All the nations that have existed from the uh, beginning of time through today, and they are so insignificant to God, they are so tiny to our infinite God, our refuge, that they're like a little tiny drop in a bucket. Okay, just a drop. That's our refuge. Our refuge is so magnificent that to him, all the nations They're like a drop in a bucket. He says also here that they are regarded as a speck of dust on scales. Dust is pretty insignificant when you're weighing things, isn't it? It's absolutely doesn't matter. I mean, dust is insignificant to to weighing things. Growing up on the farm, we had a potato business. And uh, my father, we would, uh, he would have us uh, bring all the potato- potatoes into the potato cellar in the fall, and then we would uh, work for hours on end putting the, pot- the potatoes in 100-pound bags. And so we would sit in this potato cellar for hour on end all through the winter, and we would break the dirt off the potatoes and put them in a bag and, then, and throw out the bad ones. And then we would weigh them, and we'd tie the bag up, and then people would come to our farm, and they would buy 100-pound bags of potatoes. And not once, never, did I, do I remember anybody coming to, to the place where we're selling the potatoes and they watch us weigh those, those potatoes and say, hey, uh, Mr. Shaw, before you weigh that, can you dust that off a little bit before you weigh that 100-pound bag of potatoes? Because dust is insignificant. Next time you're in a grocery store buying some apples and right before you buy them, tell the cashier, hey, could you dust those apples off before you weigh them? She's going to think you're crazy, right? Because dust is insignificant. It doesn't matter. God says here, the nations, the nations are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales in contrast to our God. But Isaiah isn't through. Verse 17, he says, all the nations are nothing before him. They're nothing before him. And then the last part, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. I mean, it's one thing for somebody to say to this nation or to a nation, you are nothing. But then to bring it up with, oh, actually, you're less than nothing. How low can you go? But in, in contrast to this great God, you're less than nothing. Very humbling statements that Isaiah is painting here are bringing to us here. All the nations are nothing before him. Compared to God, the nations are insignificant. And I want to remind you again that God is our God. It's our God. He is our God. Resume point number four. God is infinitely greater than kings, authorities, and all creatures. Look at verse 21. Drop down there. He says, have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits upon the, above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princesses to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. What we have here is Isaiah just kind of rattles off several things. But first of all, uh, God is greater than the inhabitants. He says that the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. I'm sorry, that's us. Compared to this infinitely great God, we are like grasshoppers. 
okay? Just tiny, insignificant. Now, the beauty of it is, as believers in Christ, we, we have great significance because of Christ, right? But just the overall scheme of things, as we look at this infinite God, we are like grasshoppers. Isaiah continues, he, he goes back a little bit to creation, and he says he stretches out the heavens. You just think about that. It's kind of like the, uh, uh, what do they call those, accordion doors. I believe we've had them in various parts of the church where it divides two rooms, and it's closed, and you start to pull it out, and it goes, okay? It's a picture. If you look at it, it's just stretching out the heavens. That's God. He's just stretching out the heavens. That's our, our great God. Isaiah continues, he gives a very picturesque statement here in verse uh, 23. He says, he brings the princesses to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Okay, think about that. With all the power-hungry people in our world, and in contrast to our God, they're useless. He brings them to nothing. And then he follows up in verse 24. Let's reread it again. Scarcely they shall be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. That's how insignificant the leaders, the princesses, the kings, the rulers of the nations of this earth are in contrast to God. Okay, they're insignificant. Now, we know God uses them. It's kind of like a pawn. God uses them to accomplish his eternal plan. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like rivers of water wherever he pleases. But also, don't miss that verse, verse 24. They rise up. God blows on them, and they're gone. I just was thinking about all the great leaders throughout, not all of them, but many of the great leaders throughout history. I was thinking of like Nebuchadnezzar back in Babylonian time. Uh, great leader, conquered the world, became insane, started eating grass like a cow until he repented and believed in the God of the Bible. You have Alexander the Great, conquered and then died at the age of 32. You have Napoleon who tried to conquer Europe and uh, died in exile. You have Hitler who tried to conquer Europe, maybe the world, died in a bunker. You have guys like uh, Saddam Hussein trying to wreak havoc and conquer, and he's found in a hole in the ground and then hanged. Ah, leaders, they just, they rise up, God blows on them, they wither, and they're gone. But God stays the same. He's still there. He's a very present help in time of trouble. He's always there, always in existence. God continues. So resume point number four, God is infinitely greater than kings, authorities, and all creatures. Well, let me give you a resume point number five. God is infinitely greater in knowledge and in control. We go back a little bit more and touch on this issue of knowledge that we talked about back in verses 13 and 14. But here we see again, God has this unbelievable knowledge and control, and it's actually over his creation. If you look at verse, verses 25 and 26, to whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. And so Isaiah talks about the stars and looking out at the creation up in the skies. And, and what we have here is some incredible things about our God. 
Okay? He says there that he brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. God is infinite in his knowledge. I love this study about God and his creation. And one of the things that I love is in this verse that he calls all the stars by name. One of the things that we've done this week, Mark Amundrud helped me figure this out, just giving thought to uh, the issue of stars and, and calling the stars by name. So we sat down and we figured this out, and Mark used his mathematical skills to figure this out. But it's estimated that in the universe, okay, not just in our galaxy, but in the universe, there are so many stars, it would be 10 to the 24th power. That's how many stars there's estimated to be in the universe. So we thought about this, and we, we figured out how many names are on a normal page in a phone book. Okay, so we got the Bozeman phone book, and we counted uh, the names on one of the pages, and there was somewhere around 258, I think, 258 names on one page. And so then we measured the, the thickness of the phone book, and then Mark calculated everything, figuring out 10 to the 24th power, the number of stars, and then you give all those names, and here's how many phone books you would end up with, okay? It would be a stack, or uh, more, more than one stack, but a stack of phone books to the sun 2,590,888 times if we had all the names of the stars in phone books. Here it says he calls all the stars by name. Okay? God is infinite in his knowledge. He is great in his knowledge. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Here we go. Not one of them is missing. God doesn't go uh, look out into his creation and say, I wonder what happened to that one star that had this, this name. I wonder where that star's at. God doesn't do that. Okay? Not one of those stars is missing. Psalm 147, verse 4 says, He counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. It's no wonder Isaiah, when Isaiah walks through those various points, it's no wonder he can say what he says to wrap up this chapter. So let's read the verses and how he ends, okay? After painting that picture about this infinitely great God, he says this in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob... And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not heard? Have you not, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary." And the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord, the Lord, the the one that he just wrote all those verses about, those those who wait on him, this is what happens. They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah paints this unbelievable picture for the people of Israel so that they would have hope and comfort in the midst of coming judgment. Okay? And then he says, but look at God. Look at God. Look at who your God is. This is the God of us. This is our God. This is the God we know, the God we should obey. Okay? So Isaiah points people back to God. Now let's go back to Psalm 46 as we wrap this up. I don't know about you, but life has some hiccups. 
Life can get hard at times. Life can get very challenging. A lot of heartache, a lot of challenges, a lot of things that press us, press on us and squeeze us. And frankly, I need a refuge. And men and women, you do too. God is our refuge and strength. Why would we want to turn to something else? Why would we want to go back? Just thinking through that list that I gave at the start. Why would we want to go and try to find refuge in those things when the God that we have is so great? There's a challenge to our faith here, right? Because we can't see God. So by faith, we embrace the character and attributes of God that are presented to us in Scripture. I just want to ask you as we wrap this up, in the trials of life, in the heartache of life, in the, uh, the stresses of life, What's your refuge? Who do you turn to or what do you turn to for a refuge? I could, if I could, I would push a button and get all of us to consistently and faithfully go back to God who is infinitely greater than nations and nature and infinite in knowledge. Why would we want to go to those other refuges? Why don't we go to God and see him as our refuge and strength? So the psalmist says here, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He says, continues on in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried away into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. By the way, that means stop and think. Selah. Pause. Pause right here and think about it. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just as the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come. Behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. And then the psalmist says this, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us through this day. Thank you for your love for us, an infinite love, a love that uh, we want to recognize that we do not deserve. We pause and we thank you for, for loving us in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of the, the type of people we have been and are, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. Father, I, I know I need a refuge. I need strength in the time of trouble. We all do, Father. Help us, Lord, to turn to you when, uh, when the stresses of life, when the heartache of life, when the trials of life start ripping at our soul. Help us to turn to you, for you are indeed the only thing that satisfies. God, we do want to see you as a refuge. We want to believe in you as a refuge. We want to turn to you as a refuge. So we ask that you would help us to do so. There's so many things that uh, grab a hold of our attention And our hearts and our our flesh just takes us towards uh, other things that are, uh, that maybe temporarily serve as a refuge. Lord, we want to come to you. We want to be people who faithfully turn to you and, and rely on you.
for aid, for escape, for relief, Lord. It's a great place to be, to be found in press, and press in close to you, relying on you, trusting you, and, and leaning on you as our refuge. And so, Lord, help us to live life in that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>